Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hey, Muller Junkies. We would like to thank Third Love for supporting Muller She Wrote. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, and right now they're offering our listeners 15% off their first order. Just head to thirdlove.com slash AG to find your perfect fit for 15% off. That's thirdlove.com slash AG. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Mueller She Wrote. I'm your anonymous host, A.G., I use a pseudonym because I work for Trump and I don't want to violate the Hatch Act. And as we know, he's purging non-loyalists in the government, so trying to keep below profile. With me, as always, is Jaleesa Johnson. Hello. And Jordan Coburn. Hello. Glad to have you back, Jordan. Thank you. Good to be back. Tits McGee was on vacation. <laughs> we had listeners write in saying that they missed your F-bombs. Aw. They, yeah, they missed everything about you, dude. Like, every once in a while, I'd just be like, fuck. And like, we need that back. <laughs> I'm glad We're, that's my memorable contribution to this. <laughs> so much more. <laughs> You're more than just your F-bombs, Jordan. Uh, we have a big show for you this week. Jaleesa's going to cover what really went down in the Seychelles. Jordan will be giving us an update on the Congressional Democrats' lawsuit alleging Trump's violating the Emoluments Clause. And we're all going to cover the Kavanaugh news that we find relevant in a special segment today dedicated to the SCOTUS. We're going to have a special segment for it, so we're kind of mixing things up. This week we have a few special guests, including staff writer for The Atlantic, Natasha Bertrand, to talk to us about the Rosenstein fire drill we had this week, <laughs> and her story about a Supreme Court case that could give Trump the ability to pardon state crimes. And we're going to shake things up with esteemed professor and former ambassador to Russia under Obama, Michael McFaul. And that's going to be my hot note this week, is the interview that I had with him. Uh, I have one correction. Um, a fellow from Alaska had told us, please don't flood Murkowski's office with calls so that actual Alaskans can get through. He was waiting like 10 to 15 minutes on hold. Oh, wow. Uh, I also found that they remember that lawsuit I talked about a couple weeks ago where I thought Fox News went to the Supreme Court to say they could lie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it was the Supreme Court, but it was a case called the Susan B. Anthony list or SBA or SBA list versus Dry House during the 2010 campaign. That's the one where uh, all the uh, Tea Party or guys came out of the woodwork. Right. And the organization put uh, billboards up in Ohio about Rep. 
uh, Democrat Rep. Steve Dryhouse saying he voted for taxpayer-funded abortion. And a claim that claim was ruled to be factually incorrect. So the SBA list filed an injunction saying that it was their interpretation of the law, and under the First Amendment they should be able to say it, and basically they won. So okay. that's kind of where this whole you-can-lie-about-stuff started came from. Yeah, yeah. So it was the conservatives. It was just wasn't Fox News. But that's under that ruling, Fox News can... Do what they do. Basically just lie. (laughs) Do their thing. Yeah. So I also wanted to thank everyone for all the support and kind words um, and the thousands of amazing responses we got to our Me Too experiences. It was a rough week, but we made it through together. And now we can get through this week and prepare for the next week because I don't think it's going to let up. Mm -mm. We have a bunch of news to get through. So let's get going with just the facts. So the news did not take a break over the weekend, this weekend. It just plowed right through, pretty much like they were trying to get the Kavanaugh uh, thing through. So mm-hmm. it, it just kept going. Uh, we let you go last week before the 2.30 Eastern deadline for Blasey Ford to respond to the Senate Judiciary in the matter of Kavanaugh. And we'll pick right back up there, basically. As you know, Blasey Ford made the deadline uh, and agreed to continue negotiations with a hearing date for Thursday. And uh, we're going to go over the week's events in Kavanaugh in that special segment I told you about later in the show. Mm-hmm. Saturday, after we recorded, we learned that former Trump aide Jason Miller has been accused of secretly administering an abortion pill to a woman he cheated on his wife with after learning she was pregnant. The accusations came to light in a court filing alleging that Miller had had an affair with a woman he met at a strip club. The pill caused her to lose the baby, and it seriously jeopardized her health as well. Apparently, he brought her a smoothie and put it in there and didn't tell her. It was spiked with the abortion pill along with with some other illicit drugs, and it nearly put her in a coma. She spent two days in the hospital. Yeah, even Plan B, the most basic, like, generic pills are still, like, they make you really nauseous. Like, you have to eat certain things Mm -hmm. and just make sure you're aware of your body. And she had no idea. No clue. Insane. Yeah, and I don't know if it was a Plan B prevention pill or an abortion pill. I think they are saying it's an abortion pill, which like is like straight up RU yeah. four eighty six, where wow, you're already pregnant, where the where Plan B prevents you from getting pregnant. Yeah, yeah, I've heard about those. So also Saturday, yeah, what a great guy, right? Only the Jesus. best people. Yeah. Also Saturday, we learned from the New York Times that billionaire, the billionaire backer of Butina, billionaire backer of Butina. <laughs> had Russian security ties. No. Uh, In a New York Times piece by Mike McIntyre, it's alleged that Konstantin Nikolaev has been a source of revenue for business useful to the Kremlin, the FSB, and the GRU. The evidence comes from a tranche of 9,000 hacked emails. And you guys know who Butina is. She was she was the NRA uh, trying to be a spy. Queen, right. You know. She's a yeah. spy, but not a sex spy. Mm-hmm. No, nope. she's not the sex coach. <laughs> yeah. The spy um, who didn't check me. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Paul Erickson. That's womp, good. Womp. I know. Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she's the redhead who poses with guns and was trying to infiltrate. Basically, the Russians were trying to infiltrate religious groups and um, gun groups and pro-life groups to, mm-hmm. to get into the American political system. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tuesday, we came as close as ever to Rosenstein getting fired. They even had the Chiron up on CNN saying Rosenstein fired, but yeah. then it went back and forth between fired and resigns. Um, <laughs> and we were all lacing up our marching shoes. We were going to get ready to go to that, you know, moveon.org, find out where our nearest march was. Mm-hmm. But it, something was fishy about it. It was almost as fishy as that New York Times story that came out the Friday before saying Rosenstein wanted to wear a wire in Trump meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, joining us today to talk about the Rosenstein firing and her new piece on the Gamble versus United States um, case and what that could mean for the Mueller investigation is staff writer for The Atlantic and friend of the podcast, Natasha Bertrand. Natasha, welcome back to Mueller, she wrote. Thanks so much for having me. 
We really appreciate you being here. So first of all, what do you think was really going on with that Rosenstein firing and then resigning and then not firing and not resigning? And, and did we get any news about Trump's forgotten meeting with him on Thursday? So the meeting actually ended up being postponed because they didn't want to distract from the Kavanaugh and Blasey Ford hearings. So as of right now, it will be next week, um, but it, it might be postponed again because next week, of course, that's when you know the FBI investigation is going to be going on into Kavanaugh's past. So as of right now, I think that Rosenstein's fate is kind of on hold um, in terms of the president, but in terms of Congress. Um, he, of course, has agreed to meet behind closed doors with House Republicans um, who want to grill him about this New York Times story that, of course, was ultimately the impetus for all of these crazy reports last Monday. I think it was that he was going to be fired, that he had already resigned. Um, but but yeah, so I think that as of right now, the House Republicans are just really taking advantage of the fact that they can use this New York Times story as an excuse to call him in and grill him. Um, and also, of course, a subpoena for the, the Andy McCabe memos, which were central in that story as well. And speaking of that New York Times story um, that ended up being contradicted by NBC and the Washington Post, what do you think? It's, the, the timing seemed really odd. What do you think was really going on there? Yeah, so the Times had has come out and said since then that they've been working on that story for months, if not you know close to a year. Um, I I honestly don't know. I, I, it's it's hard for me to speculate on sourcing as a journalist just because it's it's bad practice. But it's it, it is it was weird timing. It was suspicious, and it obviously was not. It did not have enough context, and it was not well corroborated because. Ultimately, the Washington Post and NBC reported later that he was being sarcastic, that he, you know, it was actually Andy McCabe that was who was the one to suggest that uh, an investigation by the FBI be launched into the president. And then Rosenstein reportedly said, well, what do you want me to do, Andy? Wire the president. And that's the comment that ultimately made its way into the Times. Um, The 25th Amendment talk, uh, you know, reportedly was also sarcastic, if you're to believe the the two, the Post and NBC over the Times. Um, But, uh, you know, I think it's also important context that the New York Times did not really delve into, which is what was happening during that period um, and why the deputy attorney general would find it appropriate to even, you know, bring up something like the 25th Amendment or bring up something like potentially recording the president. Um, He, you know, had just fired Comey. There was talk of a constitutional crisis. He was obviously trying to impede the investigation into his own campaign. He had just met with the Russians in the Oval Office and disclosed classified information. I mean, this was someone who at the time, uh, career officials really did not think that he was fit to hold the office. They thought that he was um, very, very unstable. So I think that getting into Rosenstein's state of mind is something that would have benefited the time story a lot. Um, I know that they would not necessarily be able to speculate, but if they could have done some additional reporting, I think that would have made the story much more solid. Um, Also, this week, you wrote a great piece for The Atlantic that I've gotten a lot of questions about regarding the Gamble v. United States case, which is about the dual sovereignty doctrine that allows for the same crime to be tried both federally and at the state level. And this is a case where a guy went to jail and was uh, he served his time and then he was charged again for the same crime federally, which I think we can all agree is unfair. But I think what people are taking away from this is that if Kavanaugh is seated, 
the court could find in favor of this guy and toss out the serenity doctrine, which would prevent any Trump pardons from state action. So I just wanted to clarify, as you did in the article, that the decision could theoretically protect people that Trump pardons from state action, which means it would have to be for the same crime, right? Right, exactly. So this is something that when I spoke to legal experts about this, they cautioned that there are a few different ways that you can interpret what the same crime would be. Um, it's it's very murky, but it essentially comes down to you can either interpret it one of two ways, whether it has the same elements um, or whether it arose out of the same behavior. So depending on how you know a state would would want to interpret what the same crime what the same crime was, then they are able to still, because of the dual sovereignty doctrine, they are able to charge um, the same crime as the federal government and vice versa. So this is something that Orrin Hatch filed a, you know, kind of random 44 page amicus brief on earlier this month um, on September 11th, I believe. And it was, it stuck out because it just seemed Orrin Hatch has been active in criminal justice reform, but he has never weighed in on this subject in particular. Um, so seeing him kind of go, you know, write this massive brief all about how the state and the federal government should not be able to charge someone with the same crime just because, you know, based on uh the, the idea that a state has the right to protect and preserve its own laws and the federal government does as well was really was really stark because, of course, Orrin Hatch, Mr. Conservative Republican, you would think would be on the side of kind of expanded states' rights. Um, but in this case, he was not. So speaking to lawyers about it, speaking to kind of constitutional experts about it, um, the, the lawyers were very cut and dry. They said, yes, of course, this could have dramatic implications for Mueller's investigation, because if the dual sovereignty doctrine were overturned, then it would seem rather clear that the states, for example, if, if things were to get farmed out to the state attorney generals, attorneys general, then they would not be able to charge, for example, someone who's already been pardoned by Trump on the federal level for the same crime. So that would in turn strengthen Trump's pardon power. Um, but constitutional experts who are always, you know, discussing interpretation and how to interpret things, they said, well, this actually might not be as dramatic as it seems, because if you take the president's pardon power to include only, um, you know, cri- like crimes against the United States, um, if you interpret that as as exclusively a federal offense, then that might not extend to states anyway. So in that in that sense, his pardon power is constitutionally confined to um, federal offenses. So there's there's a lot of gray area here. But one thing is is certain, which is that if the dual sovereignty doctrine were overturned and the double jeopardy um, clause of the Fifth Amendment were had no exceptions to it, then that would really make it a lot murkier with regard to if Trump were to pardon um, someone, uh, you know, prematurely on the federal level, whether or not a state would then be able to try them for the same or similar, depending on how they define that crime on the state level. Right. And that doesn't um, preclude at all if he is seen as using the pardon power as an abuse of power. I mean, that's just a completely separate uh, idea and politically and optically that could be really bad for him whether or not they can be tried in state uh, in the state as well and I, I feel like different charges or at least similar charges brought up by different facts like you said could theoretically still be fair game um, right. and you know 
like and also gamble is going to basically set the precedent this this guy served time for a crime and then was recharged or or tried to be tried again in federal and uh, presumably if trump like you said pardoned too soon premature pardon that uh and and matt like let's say pardon manafort who hadn't gone to jail yet i don't know that it would be it would fall under this kind of precedent Right, exactly. It just really muddies the waters. And I think it's also important, just as a side note, to to say that Kavanaugh is, he when he was asked by the Senate Judiciary Committee a couple weeks ago during his first round of hearings, what where he fell on the question of self-pardons, <laughs> he dodged. He would not answer the question. Um, so he, we, we're not really clear where he stands on that, whether or not, for example, a president um, can be subpoenaed. Um, so these are all areas where Kavanaugh, as someone who was undecided on those issues, or at least said he was undecided, and also, you know, has historically been in favor of expanded presidential um, power and executive executive power, he could really help the president. And this is another instance in Gamble where he could be a swing vote and um, the consequences could be pretty uh, dramatic. Yeah, I feel like he could be a swing vote in Gamble, but I don't think so necessarily in like a subpoena a situation like if Mueller subpoenaed the president, I feel like yeah. I mean, you you know, I I can't figure out why Trump is digging his heels in so much for Kavanaugh, like why he didn't cut bait and just try to nominate one of the other lady judges, um, because I mean, presumably, yeah. I mean, Kavanaugh might rule that the president is above the law, but I don't think m- any maybe of the other judges would rule in that rule that way either or like you know what i mean like i don't i don't see that as a big as a big a thing as as maybe like this can't this gamble case yeah that's a really good point it's 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 he he has such a kind of out of the mainstream view of executive power that it's really unclear and unlikely that the other judges would go along with it so that's a really good point all right so finally i wanted to ask you we learned uh this week um i think it was on maddow or msnbc um that whitaker uh, and not the PADAG uh, O'Callahan, he's the he's the new PADAG, uh, but it would be Whitaker that would take over the number two spot if Rosenstein were fired, which is not normal and it's important because that person who would be Whitaker would oversee all the investigations that aren't Mueller related, so like the Cohen Southern District of New York and the Trump Organization and and the Trump uh, Foundation lawsuits and, and and things like that. So, could you tell us why why that might be important? Yeah, so Whitaker is Jeff Sessions' chief of staff, um, was, um, I believe. And he has said in the past, I mean, he's expressed skepticism in the past about the special counsel investigation. He has said that it should be wrapped up. Um, So I'm not as read in, you you guys might want to cut this, because I'm not as read in on this issue um, as I probably should be. But but yeah, I mean, I think that his partisan nature could be could be problematic. So I think it's important to note that uh, anyone Trump replaces Rosenstein with, if that person actually refuses, because we've always been talking about if, you know, they get rid of Rosenstein and put in a guy like Benchkowski, who's pro-Trump, and then that person could refuse anything Mueller recommends. But I, I think it's important to note, or at least I've heard that refusing uh, to do that, um, that decision of refusal goes to the ranking member of the House and Senate judiciaries. So, uh, I mean, I think that that do you think I mean, that could have a, an impact on on whether or not they refuse these kind of things. And it, politically, it could be really bad for him. Right, of course. And and it's also worth noting that there's going to be a blue wave. <laughs> I mean, it's very unlikely that that Democrats are not going to take um, the House, which is going to change um, all of the calculations dramatically when it comes to, uh, you know, anything that comes out of the Russia investigation. I think that um, there's going to be 
Trump is going to have to think twice before he um, decides that he want, you know, wants to appoint someone who is very clearly um, in his camp. Um, there's going to be a lot of pushback on that. Yeah, and I, I'm pretty sure that I think the number three right now is, is Noel Francisco because the associate um, deputy right. attorney general is an acting and you can't have an acting be an acting acting. And so... Uh, right, so it would be Francisco who would take over the Mueller investigation um, or overseeing the Mueller investigation if Rosenstein were out, ousted. So Yeah, and he seems to be a Mueller ally. I know that there was that public dinner he had with Sessions and, and Rosenstein. They seem to kind of be on the same page, at least. At least that was sort of what they were seemingly publicly telling us. Yeah, he has in the past um, been skeptical of special counsel investigations, but he's also been very, very quiet on the issue of, of this investigation in particular and it does not seem like he would that, that he's partisan in any way um it seems like he from everyone i've spoken to he is a very kind of rosenstein-esque figure um just in terms of his discipline and, and keeping his head down and and understanding the the importance of this investigation so i don't think that if francisco took over we would see any kind of dramatic shift in the way that the investigation is going that being said it's always possible um that he could be less generous to Mueller than rosenstein has been because rosenstein has taken an extremely hands-off approach to the investigation and has been a very much an ally and supportive of Mueller throughout it um we could see a, a slight shift in that in francisco it just really depends but i don't think we would see anything big All right. Well, staff writer for The Atlantic and Mueller expert extraordinaire, Natasha Bertrand, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Then later Tuesday, an email obtained by ABC suggested Roger Stone sought contact with Julian Assange of WikiLeaks in emails with James Corsi back on July 31st, 2016. One email said, quote, Malik should see Assange, referring to Ted Malik. That's that London-based conservative author and Trump supporter guy. Malik's been interviewed by Mueller's team. And the email was sent nine days after the WikiLeaks uh, dump of the first batch of stolen DNC emails from Gucci for 2.0. The other email came from Stone to Corsi, suggesting Malik find a British woman who had leveled accusations against former President Bill Clinton and to find Bernie Sanders' brother who called Bill Clinton a rapist. It was in August that Stone seemed to have advanced knowledge of the second document dump, and Stone had admitted to having been in contact with Gucci for 2.0. So the email is likely uh, from the Corsi grand jury interview that happened last Friday, and Corsi is the 11th member of the Roger Stonehenge band to be (laughs) contacted by special counsel, 11 people surrounding him. Uh, Tuesday, friend of the pod, Scott Stedman, made his stellar comeback, releasing a report Ooh. on Twitter that the PR firm CRC, that's the, the firm Ed Whelan hired to get shit on Blasey Ford, is actually connected to Yanukovych. Jesus. It's crazy. It's just going to get into this ridiculous Russian doll situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the mid-2000s, CRC was subcontracted to work on behalf of Viktor Yanukovych. They were hired to get meetings with D.C. leaders to improve Yanukovych's image. Um, They filed a FARA statement, unlike Manafort, Mm -hmm. confirming that the money they received was on behalf of a foreign entity, Yanukovych. The payment coincides with Manafort's work, but there's no evidence that the CRC worked with Manafort or has any continuing relationship with Yanukovych or any Putin allies. Mm. So I'm I'm so glad Stedman is back. We're going to have him. He was on like a super top secret mission that no one could talk about. But now he's back. Cool. And we're going to have him on next week week's show to drop some big news. He's nice. got, oh, he's that's got a, exciting. A big story for us. Yeah. I was also thinking, too, I was listening. RT was covering the Kavanaugh hearings incredibly. 
And it's like people are like, oh, why are they doing that? It's obvious why they're doing it. It's why we cover on this podcast, aside from it being related to women and our struggles. But right. it's like it's relevant. Yeah. Kav- yeah. If Kavanaugh gets on the Supreme Court, he's going to su- he's going to support Trump and all of his efforts to mm-hmm. be protected from being punished pr- appropriately over yeah. the Russia shit. Right. He's above the law. Yeah. And we, of course, we can't forget that Kamala Harris line of questioning where she's like, did you talk to people at the Kasowitz? Torres, whatever law firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I I don't know who works there, but like fuck you. Mm-hmm. F that guy in the A. <laughs> uh, but not. I'm not gay shaming. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I get emails. <laughs> it's only because he doesn't like it. So true, it's true. the only reason you're saying that, <laughs> right? It's not a gay thing. Um. So well, he might. I don't know. He could that's be true. Bottom. Yeah, I don't want to assume his butt pleasure. Right. Um, butt pleasure. <laughs> he could be into butt stuff. We don't know, and that's cool. High five, bro. <laughs> Um, anyway, Scott Stedman has decided now to work for the people and his listeners and his readers instead of a major news outlet. And he now has a Primo account to help him pay his bills. So head to primosocial.com. That's P-R-E-M-O, primosocial.com slash Scott Stedman to sign up for his pre- premium Twitter feed. It's really amazing. So you want to get in on that, help him pay his bills. Keep supporting like this free journalism because that's what he is. Hell yeah. He's pretty cool. Then Wednesday, the Daily Beast dropped a story called, quote, revealed what Eric Prince and Moscow's money man discussed in that infamous Seychelles meeting. And Jaleesa is going to go over that later in the show. Mm-hmm. Thursday were the Kavanaugh Blasey Ford hearings. And we're going to talk about that later. But finally, Friday, the Washington Post dropped a story on the Congressional Democrats lawsuit about Trump violating the emoluments clause of the Constitution. And Jordan's going to go over that later in the show. So stick around for that. We'll be right back. Hey, Muller junkies. So recently, Jaleesa Jordan and I had the pleasure of going online and shopping for a bra on Third Love. And they have not just bras, they have undies and everything too. And uh, they have this really cool fit finder test that you take that doesn't just talk about like the size of your bra, but also the shape, like the cup shape. Mm-hmm. And if your straps slip or if you get spillage, like it really goes into a lot of detail. And they have all these sides, like they have, they use metadata, like thousands of women's measurements to find your perfect fit. So, I went on, and it's really easy, right? I just answered a b- bunch of questions about the, the shape of myself and the size and what I normally wear. Uh, they ask you kind of like what bras you usually use and and what you know works or doesn't work about it. And then they find you your perfect size. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, did you? it was an easy quiz, right? Totally, yeah. yeah. I felt like they were kind of reading my mind with the stuff they were <laughs> asking. It's like, yes, this is always what I'm thinking about. I need to be addressed when I'm bra shopping. And they were addressing it, and it was really great. They get everything down... I had issues with my back, like chest band, always riding up. Yeah. And when I got this one, it doesn't ride up. It hasn't ridden up in the last, like, you know, few right. times I've worn it. And it's, it's tagless, so you don't have to mm-hmm. worry about that thing. And then it's like I've noticed that it's really smoothing, so I don't have any, you know, back fat problems <laughs> <laughs> with their bra because I usually I kind of run into that sometimes. Yeah. And you can be uh, like as thin as a stick and still get that squeeze. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Definitely. So, it felt like having like, a personal tailor, really. It did. And and they just added 24 new sizes. So they're the industry leader. They have 70 sizes now. I think they have half cups and everything. And, and it's really the details that make a difference because, like I said, it's really soft. It's smoothing. I really love it. I'm wearing it right now. And like I said, just hop on, take that Fit Finder quiz. Oh, yeah. I'm wearing the undies. They were really soft. I am too. Yeah, they're so soft. I got the cheeky ones. Yeah. Ooh. The cheeky lacy ones. Yeah. They're very nice. I feel very girly. Nice. Uh, anyway, hands down, most comfortable bra uh, I've I've worn. Uh, and the straps don't slip. They don't dig in. It doesn't ride up like you were saying. So mm-hmm. 
Guys, they're giving a special offer to our listeners right now. If you go to thirdlove.com slash AG, you'll get 15% off your first order. So definitely check that out. That's actually a really good discount. 15% is pretty oh, yeah. big. So anybody who, who needs a new bra, go give them a try. Take their Fit Finder quiz and, you know, find your perfect size. Again, mm-hmm. it's thirdlove.com slash AG. All right. Welcome back. Hot notes. Welcome back. Today, Jordan is going to give us an update on the emolument suit. But first, Jaleesa has some news on what really went down in the Seychelles. What happens in the Seychelles stays in the Seychelles. (laughs) Jaleesa? Yes. I've been trying so hard to make a little like a folk thing, like somebody sold Seychelles by the seashore, (laughs) but I can't get it to make sense. Um, Like a tongue twister. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So as we've previously reported, Mueller's team and other investigators have been looking into that infamous Seychelles meeting between Putin and Trump's people, the one that happened just weeks before Trump's inauguration. And so far, the details about the meeting have been super murky. But now we have a memo that was sent right after the meeting and provided to us for the first time by the Daily Beast. And it sheds new light on what happened from the Russians perspective. So just to bring you up to speed, on January 7th, 2017, a meeting took place at the Four Seasons Hotel between Eric Prince, the former head of Blackwater, and Kirill Dmitriev, the CEO of a Russian sanctions fund. George Nader was also there. And even after a year through the meeting, Prince testified to Congress that the meeting was very informal and took place over a beer. Right, like they just ran into each other. Yeah, they went all the way over there for a beer. <laughs> so he also denies that he Kevin attended. likes beer. They do. Yeah. Kevin all loves beer. We had beer. We like beer. <laughs> what beer do you like? Do you drink beer? I drink beer. Do you drink? Do you have, What do you drink? I bet like beer companies were like, hell yeah. <laughs> this confirmation hearing Dude, brought to you by so- Bud Light. <laughs> he just has a blazer with a big like Budweiser patch Dude, on it. No, time. Miller time. <laughs> oh, God. The champagne of beers. Oh, fancy. Mm. (laughs) And even the executive director of the Trump transition team told the Daily Beast that after a review of its files, they found no indication that anyone on their team helped plan the Seychelles meeting or knew about it in advance, which is interesting. Um, However, since the testimony, Mueller's team has received information that the meeting was, quote, a pre-organized effort to set up back channel between Trump and the Kremlin. And that was from the Washington Post. So now, according to this new memo that Dmitry sent after the meeting, apparently there were plans for the U.S. and Russia to tackle some of the toughest diplomatic challenges facing the two countries. The memo specifically lists four potential areas of cooperation, including a joint U.S.-Russian raids to kill top terrorists, improvements between the U.S.-Russia relations generally, teamwork between an American government agency and a sanctioned Russian fund, as well as talks of Moscow pouring money into the Midwest. So as a lot of us know, Trump spent his entire presidential campaign promising to bring back jobs to the Rust Belt states. And this memo is now evidence that Russia was definitely listening and proposing ways to help Trump make that campaign promise come true. And as far as the joint special forces, according to the memo, the idea was set up um, or the idea was to set up a mission where the U.S. and Russia would take out a key ISIS person or place and then announce it together afterwards. It's very cute. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah. Hold hands. Yeah. Frenzies. We did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our first killing. I just see that little that little wombat thing with his fist up in the air. Oh. We did it. Yes. 
I love it. <laughs> so, but either way, I will note that uh, although the Kremlin was sanctioned at the time, it's still apparently legal for a U.S. person to meet with him and, and do limited business deals with him. But the issue is that this still doesn't really add up. And one Obama-era State Department official said all the priorities laid out in the memo would be typical for two countries with normal relations. But he added that he was astounded that this pitch was made in the wake of Russia's 2016 election meddling. He said it was breathtaking. And regarding Prince's testimony, uh, Jim Himes, a Democratic member of the House Intelligence Committee, said, why Eric Prince? Why Dimitri? Why did this meeting happen? And he went on to mention how conversations like that happen every day. But this one seems different. It was clearly a low profile meeting about some pretty serious stuff. And Himes went on to say, this just feels to me like one more of the half dozen examples of Russians sticking their tentacles out to see what kind of relationship they might build. Ew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very interesting choice of words. I should have anime in my head now. <laughs> Russian tentacle porn. Yeah, yeah. They're just trying to figure out what kind of influence they could have. And, and personally, I feel like Putin wanting to pour money into the Midwest is more about him having influence over our politics. And as we know, Putin, he doesn't have, you know, our best interest at heart. So I just think he wants to get in deeper in, into American, you know, politics and just destroy it from within like he's been doing with Trump. Can and, I ask a quick question? Oh, totally. Oh, so sorry, sorry. No worries. Okay. Um, so this came, was supposed to come from a fund that was a Russian sanctioned fund. Absolutely. Though, right? Yeah, yeah. So then is that not conspiracy Illegal. yeah conspiracy, conspiracy commit, yes you know i guess whatever yeah yeah that's two the, things mm-hmm. not filing as a foreign you know not doing a fara and then right. also sanctioned funds yeah yeah the yeah. sanction part it, is up for a lot of controversy because people are saying well i guess an individual person is allowed to make deals but we're or Mueller's assuming that it was on behalf of trump so they're trying to prove whether or not he was doing things on behalf of the administration or not yeah and it, it would seem like it could end up that all these russians are just reaching out to the trump campaign and getting their weird tentacles in there mm-hmm. uh and maybe trump uh, wasn't an active player but he had to have known about a lot of it and just right. knowing that felonies are occurring is a felony and yes. when you're not reporting it, particularly since the FBI came to him early on and said, hey, Russians are going to try to reach out to you. You got to tell us. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, one way or the other, it's illegal. <laughs> totally. Already. Right. Discussing, yeah. was the Seychelles meeting was before Trump took Before office. the inauguration, but yeah. he had already been elected. Because you can't, um, that's against the Logan Act uh, to act on behalf of a president who's not yet seated. There you go. Yeah. So those kind of negotiations, whether you're talking about good stuff or bad stuff. Still against still the law. Against the Logan Act. But no president. one's ever prosecuted against the Logan Act, but we'll see what that, how that shakes out. But you also have to remember that, I mean, you can't, yeah, like if if he were president and you had this meeting, it'd be okay to talk about operations in Syria and special ops and special forces and working together to fight ISIS. But it would not, and it is never okay, to talk about lifting sanctions in exchange for uh, influence or mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. uh, political influence from a foreign. Uh, country adversary specifically right and you said that at that same meeting they were talking about pumping money into the midwest mm-hmm. to support trump is that supporting trump throughout his presidency or for his re-election in 2020 or good what do you question think? yeah i don't know it just seems like from the memo all we know is that they they had plans to do this and it sounds like they were pumping it specifically into the jobs and yeah, the, and the rest it's belt. probably an yeah. exchange for mm-hmm. um, easing on sanctions so that they could mm-hmm. go forward with a lot of these oil and gas deals that they want to do or the marshall plan where they're 
Russians are going to help build reactors mm-hmm. in Saudi Arabia, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. He's also doing, you know, the tariffs that he's implementing are hitting people really hard in the Midwest, too. So it's if you pump money into, you know, making them think that you're the greatest person ever, that's going to make your job easier. Good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Julissa. Of course. Thank you. Yeah, that was awesome. All right, Jordan, what do you have for us on the emoluments lawsuit filed by congressional Democrats? Yeah. So just one of the emoluments lawsuit. There's a few of them, as we know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this one. So a federal judge on Friday ruled that a case that was filed by 200 Democrats against Donald Trump for violating the emoluments clause can move forward, which is exciting because if you'll remember a while back, we reported on one that was trying to go through and it got halted on the grounds of it not, you know, being legit enough, I guess. I forget exactly what it was. Sorry, I can go back and fact check myself on that. Um, Basically, this was accepted on the basis of him doing business with foreign governments when in office without congressional consent. So that's what this really lies on. This is why the Democrats are the ones that are suing him. Um, so basically what he's doing or and has done, he hosts foreign embassy events and also hosts foreign officials and nationals in his Washington, D.C. hotel. And he hasn't given any details about these transactions or the money that he's making from them to Congress. And he certainly hasn't asked for his per- for their permission, hmm. which is required per the emoluments clause. Um, he's not done this on the basis of him. He says, well, I don't need to ask them because what you know what this is doesn't count as the founding father's definition of foreign emoluments because he stands to gain nothing from these and he says they're business deals not payoffs um it's anything of value yeah Mm -hmm. okay and i love to hear him try to quote what the founding fathers meant it's like bro you don't know how our government works on a fundamental level (laughs) shut up (laughs) did you read the federalist paper (laughs) i don't know what that is but uh i'm sure it's a lie (laughs) (laughs) it was written by the founding fathers yeah exactly and it's like you don't just get to decide preemptively what's going to be like defined Mm -hmm. by the constitution that's for congress to decide and that is actually what uh the judge that's overseeing this said so his name's emmett sullivan and he sounds like a pretty chill guy he pretty much is siding with the democrats so far one would imagine i mean with the law to allow it to yeah (laughs) yes and with the law that is true that is true. Um, so the Justice Department is going to be defending Trump in court, which is nice because it kind of gives him something to shut up about because he's <laughs> always talking about how they're not having his back. So right. it's probably Noel Francisco. There, mm-hmm. the name I saw in the well, yeah, you're you're probably right. The Solicitor General. He used he usually defends the government or or fights on behalf of the government in court. So I, I would assume it would be him. Could be somebody else. I'm just guessing. That would yeah. make sense though. Yeah. So Blumenthal and Nadler are saying that Trump has effectively nullified their vote by not ever even bringing it to their attention that he was receiving this kind of money from these foreign events and nationals. And by not even giving them an option to vote on anything, period, is revoking that from them. And Trump says that he believes Congress should have to – this is great. He thinks Congress should have to pass a law first saying he specifically can't do what he's doing. So he's saying Congress should have to act first to settle this and congress is saying no bro this is already a law (laughs) you're just not following it you have to ask us first and the judge looks like is siding with the democrats on this point uh this is a quote from the judge explicitly he says the clause requires the president to ask congress before accepting a prohibited foreign emolument if the allegations made by democrats are true He then wrote, the president is accepting prohibited foreign emoluments without asking and without receiving a favorable reply from Congress. 
So I'm feeling good about at least the fairness of this. For sure. This moving forward. Um, typically, judges are reluctant to accept cases in which lawmakers are suing the president for obvious reasons. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I don't like this guy. So um, Jesus, can you imagine? That'd I don't be crazy. like that guy. Yeah. But um, but the judge ruled that this was OK, basically on the basis that the Democrats have nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else they can even settle this. It's pretty much their only option. So... Essentially, the judge is going to be ruling on whether or not the Constitution's intended definition of emoluments is broad enough to include what he's been doing with hosting these events and hosting these nationals. And while Trump has stopped managing his various properties owned by the Trump Organization, he stills the owner and because of that can pull money out from those organizations at his will pretty much at any time. That's kind of where the main issue lies here still. So this is really a lawsuit about transparency, I think, because he's uh, they, they tried in this. I didn't know this happened in February. The Trump org donated one hundred and fifty one thousand four hundred seventy dollars to the U.S. Treasury, saying that those were the profits from foreign government business in 2017. <laughs> Okay. But they declined to explain how that figure was even calculated. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't seem right because I heard tell that Saudi Arabia Crown Prince and all the Ambissa guys um, rented an entire floor of mm-hmm. the Trump International Hotel, which is in the former Postal Service building, right next to the White House. And that would have cost more than $150,000. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they have to pay them, you know, themselves their hourly rate of $5 million. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, of course. Can't forget about that. That's, yeah. So odd. That's my hourly rate. <laughs> so huh. odd. <laughs> know your worth, Trump. No. <laughs> um, yeah, just a reminder, just wrapping this up for context, there's another, he's currently wrapped up in another emoluments clause case, and that's the one that the state of Maryland and District of Columbia are bringing against him. And this is on the grounds that his hotels and properties are basically allowed to unfairly profit in the area due to the nature of his name and his person being attached to that D.C. hotel. Uh, department lawyers are saying this is not an issue because the payments from those people aren't resulting in any kinds of benefits. Hmm. But that's up for the courts to Just decide. Money, <laughs> right? <laughs> Money's not a benefit. Maybe he'll yeah. argue that money is not a benefit to him <laughs> because he has so much. Yeah, of it. the best things in life are free. <laughs> Money isn't a, a thing for me. It's just paper. <laughs> Neither here nor there. You're allowed to get paper, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Watch me burn this pile of money. That's how much I don't care. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, and just just a fun fact, the, emolument, the emoluments clause has not been tested for more than 200 years in the court since... Uh, ben know. Franklin, I think, was the last guy. Yep. Whoa. Yeah. This is what you get when you get a fluke fucking unless business that's an, asshole. Mm-hmm. Unless that's an president. anecdote. Uh, it might be an anecdote. Something about Ben Franklin going to England and getting a snuff box as a present and not what? clearing it with Congress. And they all flipped out. <laughs> it could just be like a, you know, when the when the legend becomes or when the oh, yeah, when the lie becomes legend, print the lie or something yeah. like that. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, know. it's got to start somewhere. So maybe. It could be. I don't know. I'm just guessing. (laughs) I heard once. Um, I read it a lot on the internet. (laughs) I I read it a lot. (laughs) All right. Today, today from my hot note, I had an amazing chat this week with one of the smartest guys I've ever talked to. Second only to Greg Proops, of course, the smartest man in the world. So let's take a listen to that interview. Joining us today to discuss his new book, Cold War Hot Peace, is professor of political science, former U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014, and basically the architect of Barack Obama's policy on Russia. Please welcome Michael McFall. Mr. McFall, welcome to Mueller, she wrote. Thanks for having me. 
we're so glad you're here. Could you maybe kick us off by telling us a little bit about your book and uh, maybe some of your experiences being enemy number one of Putin and how that all culminated, starting with your ambassadorship and leading all the way up to the Helsinki summit, where recently Trump actually considered allowing Putin to question you and others, including Bill Browder, calling it a, quote, incredible offer, unquote. Sure. Uh, well, I didn't start off trying to be Vladimir Putin's enemy. Um, I actually met him in the spring of 1991. So I've known him for a long time. Um, but the book tries to explain, I mean, the, the essence of the book is why are we in such a confrontational period now compared to where we were uh, at the end of the Cold War when a lot of people, most certainly myself, thought we could build a more cooperative relationship with Russia, uh, integrate Russia into the international community of states. Um, and, you know, Democrat and Republican administrations had tried to do that for the last three decades. That project has now failed, in my view. Um, and so the book tries to explain why. And without trying to fit a 500-page book into a 30-second soundbite, but I'm going to try anyway, um, uh, you know, I, I basically wrestled through, um, you know, the big theories and, and explanations that you find in academia and in the government. Um, and the, I, I go through like kind of classic balance of power theories to say – that is not the whole uh, explanation. It's not just because Russia is a powerful country that we have conflict, because I can think of other countries that have risen in power that do not uh, try to annex territory of their neighbors or, or um, confront the United States. I then go through uh, in quite a bit of detail, by the way, um, alleged mistakes that America made and U.S. foreign policy in terms of prodding the bear. Uh, things like NATO expansion, the Iraq War, uh, Serbia War in 1999. And, and I go through those things and I, I do talk about how they did make relations more difficult. But my punchline, my bottom line up front, uh, as I learned in my days in the government from my Pentagon friends, my bluff, is that at, at, when push comes to shove, the real driving force for this current conflict has to do with Russian domestic politics. And in particular, when Vladimir Putin comes back to the presidency in 2012, he does that right as there are massive demonstrations against his regime and his system of government. And that combination uh, makes him uh, look for a new argument for legitimacy. And that's when he turns against the West, when he turns against Obama and when he turns against me, blaming me as I arrive as ambassador in, in January 2012 for fomenting revolution uh, against uh, his regime. And that to me is the point of no return. And that's the beginning of what I think is a tragic, but, but uh, has to recognize period of confrontation that we're in right now. I see. So, so you're kind of in the same boat as Hillary when she's being blamed for the uprising and the protests of 2011 because of that speech that she gave. So therefore planting this seed that she's somebody we have to go after. That's right. I mean, I was part of the government uh, back then. I was working at the White House. Um, I'm the person that uh, approved uh, Secretary Clinton's statement uh, that that became a very uh, consequential statement. We didn't know it at the time, but in December 2011, as you hinted at, 
Uh, she puts out a statement. I think she was in Lithuania at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I remember very vividly, I was at my son's football game in some place in Maryland uh, on the phone with her team. Um, and, you know, she just said what I think most of the world said was that this parliamentary election in December 2011 was not free and fair. Uh, and that that was the truth. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd said things like that before. But this time, Putin took offense to it. He thought it was a signal. That's what he called it, a signal to demonstrators to come out on the streets of Moscow. And ever since that moment, he blamed her. He blamed me. He blamed our administration for interfering, uh, allegedly, in his uh, electoral cycle and that's why in 2016, I think he sought uh, revenge. Wow, that's a really good point. I hadn't made that connection before. And I, I think the fact that our elections and probably our president are compromised can have some really terrible consequences and kind of lend to the inability to govern globally by the U.S. For example, like we've been reporting a lot on what's going on in the Idlib province in Syria and there was recently a triple summit between uh, Erdogan from Turkey and Rouhani from Iran and Putin. And the U.S. was noticeably absent from that entire summit. And I kept thinking to myself, how can the U.S. even interject itself cleanly because of the compromise that probably Putin has on Trump? So what do, you, what do you have to say about that? It's kind of frightening that we don't have the upper hand anymore. Well, without question, uh, President Trump has a, and I'm going to be diplomatic here, a very unique strategy for dealing with Putin and Russia. Uh, and I think it's a highly flawed strategy. Um, he believes somehow by uh, that saying nice things about Putin uh, will make them, uh, you know, they'll, de they'll develop a personal friendly relationship. And that kind of thing, I think that's all he's trying to do. Um, and what is flawed about the theory, we're going to get to the why in a minute, but what's flawed about the theory um, is he kind of thinks that, you know, a better relationship with Putin is the goal of the Trump administration's foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Um, and, and, you know, that's not the right way to do diplomacy. The way you do diplomacy is you define what are objectives that are good for Americans in terms of our security or our prosperity or our values. And then you figure out the means to achieve that. Sometimes it's diplomacy. Sometimes it's more coercive diplomacy. And he's just got those things mixed up. So, you know, if, if, if all of his happy talk and praise of Putin uh, would lead to concrete objectives that are in America's national interest, I would applaud that. I just don't see any evidence of that strategy succeeding, um, including the last summit that they had in Helsinki, where, again, the president uh, just went out of his way to praise Putin um, when, when questioned at the press conference, uh, took the side of Putin against our intelligence community in saying that he didn't think the Russians had done anything in 2016. Just crazy, given the overwhelming evidence that there is uh, uh, to support that they did. Um, and then, you know, you look at those interactions, and, and as you alluded to in your introduction, he then, you know, Putin said he wanted to interrogate a bunch of Americans because Mueller wanted to arrest a bunch of Russian intelligence officials who he had documented had violated our sovereignty in 2016. And to that offer, um, 
uh, President Trump said that's a great idea. Uh, you know, I think uh, Mr. Putin has been very generous in that. Uh, you know, the idea of handing me over to the Russians to interrogate me, by the way, just to be clear, because it became clear later, for work that I did as a White House official. Uh, that is my alleged crime. Uh, and, you know, so on a personal level, I don't think that's a great deal. I don't think that was a great outcome from the summit. But the American people have to ask, well, what did we get out of that summit? What American interest was advanced? And my answer is nothing. Um, and then I, I don't want to dodge your question about Idlib and, and, and Syria generally. You know, I get the sense that President Trump doesn't want to be involved um, in engaging on, on uh, what to do there. And he just wants to retreat. Uh, and I think that's the wrong strategy because we fought with our allies uh, a war against ISIS in eastern uh, Syria. Uh, I think I supported that war, by the way, when it started under uh, President Obama uh, and continued under the Trump administration. But to now just retreat and to hand over that territory to a brutal dictator and Mr. Assad and his allies, uh, the Russians and the Iranians and Hezbollah, I just don't think serves American national interests. And and more generally, I would say his his impulse to retreat uh, from a global leadership, I think in the long run will be detrimental to U.S. interests. It doesn't advance our cause. Right. And and you have to wonder if he's walking away so he doesn't upset Putin, right? Like, as you said, you can't set your foreign diplomacy goals so short-sightedly. It can't just be like, I want this guy to like me, right? So you have to think that this plays a role in how he responds to things like this. It's It's really frightening considering what's at stake in that area. And because it's been said, it can turn into one of the largest humanitarian crises that we've ever seen. I agree. Uh, And I just think it's irresponsible to disengage there. And I think it's bad policy to to make the goal of your Russia policy um, getting a few kind words from Putin. Now, the question is why, right? Why does why is he so hell bent on appeasing Putin? Um, and, you know, I mean, one theory is that that's just his general strategy about foreign policy. Uh, and he does that with other autocratic leaders. So that's one uh, hypothesis. But the other hypothesis, of course, is that um, the, the Russians have something on him and he's fearful uh, of what uh, uh, that information might be released. And to that, we have to wait for Mr. Mueller to answer that question. Yeah, that, that seems the most obvious to me. But we do need to wait and find out. Uh, but but that would be where my money would be if, if I were a betting person. Uh, finally, can you speak a little bit to way back in the day, starting with the Mayflower meeting uh, with Trump and Sessions and Copson and Flynn and all those guys, everybody was there, Bud McFarlane, KT. And they have this whole so-called Marshall Plan where they want to build reactors in Saudi Arabia. And I think Copson even said that, quote, we're going to recolonize the Middle East by building these reactors. And then we have to put bases up and we have to put U.S. troops in there to guard them. And then, of course, uh, they would want to go in and do this deal with Russia. So they'd have to lift sanctions to do that. Do you think this whole plan to recolonize the Middle East, which is terrifying, by the way, is that maybe the impetus behind the entire goal of easing sanctions on Russia? You know, it's an interesting idea. I mean, the whole thing, I think, is crazy. Um, So just my own personal view, I I don't know. It just seems really kooky to me. Uh, But uh, there is a thread that connects all these uh, players and and most certainly 
uh, Putin himself is trying to reposition Russia in the Middle East to develop closer relations with uh, American traditional allies. Uh, first on that list is Israel, but but second is the Sunni world, including Saudi Arabia. And therefore, you know, if you think about President Trump's uh, forays into the Middle East uh, in certain you know, putting Israel uh, and the Arab uh, countries higher on the list. Um, you, you know, down the road, I can see why people might dream about that kind of reconfiguration. Um, but I personally think it's a really bad idea. Uh, we should just pursue our own interests in the Middle East. We don't need permission uh, from the Russians to do so. And and I actually think uh, bringing the Russians in uh, uh, adds to a lot of um, uh, complications. You know, remember that on with with regard to Syria, right? Uh, another area where you've heard about these grand designs that the Russians and Americans will get together and 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 solve the civil war there. Well, remember, you know, Putin's ally in Syria is Mr. Assad, uh, one of the worst dictators in the world who has been um, accused of crimes against humanity. Uh, that's one of his allies. The next ally he has is the Iranians. Uh, they are fighting on the ground with the Russians in Syria. And then a third ally he has is Hezbollah, a uh, terrorist organization. So remember when you talk about allying with Putin to do things in the Middle East, remember all those uh, characters uh, that come with him. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the key features um, in the reset with trying diplomacy when you were ambassador and Hillary was secretary of state. You can just give up on Russia without giving up on those other things that align you with Russia that you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, the reset was very simple. We were just trying to advance American national interests. Uh, I think there's been... You know, and that's why I want people to read the book. That's why I wrote the book to kind of uh, demystify what we were trying to do. Uh, we weren't trying to be friends with the Russians. We weren't trying to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Uh, we were trying to reduce nuclear weapons in the world. We got that done. We were trying to get sanctions on Iran so that we could have uh, create the conditions for Iran nuclear deal. We got that done. We were trying to reduce our dependency on Pakistan, uh, supplying our troops in Afghanistan so that we could then go after Osama bin Laden in 2011. We got that done. Uh, we went from 95% to less than 50% of our uh, supplies went through Pakistan and they went through Russia instead so that we could go after Osama bin Laden in 2011. And I could go on. It, it was very concrete in things that we decided were in our national interests. And, and we thought that Russia could play a role in advancing our national interest. And we reasoned that they wouldn't do so unless they thought it was in their interest as well. Um, and for a while, we got a lot of big things done. And then things changed domestically, as I said earlier, inside Russia when Putin came back. And he had a different approach towards us. And what could we do? It takes two to tango, right? You can't uh, force countries to cooperate with you. So um, and then in my view, we had to move. Uh, and I say it tragically. I'm not I'm not some cold warrior wanting to get back to confrontation. But when Putin started acting like a rogue actor in the international system, uh, annexing territory uh, from Ukraine, supporting 
um, uh, a genocidal dictator like Mr. Assad and then violating our uh, sovereignty in 2016, of course you had to push back. Uh, and I hope eventually the Trump administration will learn uh, that that's the only course of action to take with Putin today. All right. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to speak uh, speak to us today. I really appreciate it. This has been very eye-opening. We're honored to talk to you. Everyone, the former ambassador to Russia under Obama and the author of the book, Cold War Hot Peace. It's available now wherever books are sold. Michael McFaul, thanks for being on Mueller, she wrote. Sure. Thanks for having me. Hey, Mueller junkies. I just wanted to say hello to all of our new friends of the pod contributing a few dollars a month for access to our premium content. This week, we had four bonus episodes, including our MSW Book Club, which is currently reviewing Fear by Bob Woodward. Among the bonus episodes are our full, unedited interviews with guests like Rosie O'Donnell, Greg Proops, former Russian ambassador Mike McFall, former Minnesota Vikings kicker Chris Cluey, and political experts like Joyce Vance, Asha Rangappa, Seth Abramson, and Scott Dworkin. We also have bonus episodes on process and policy, like this week we'll be doing a mini-sode for our growing international audience that explains the basic governance of the United States and our more relevant processes and constitutional tenets. We also have a ton of cool gifts for patrons, including t-shirts, tote bags, stickers, and our highly sought-after sexy justice calendar. As a patron, you get your own private RSS feed for ad-free main episodes. And finally, patrons will receive our weekly newsletter, which includes photos, infographics, relevant links mentioned in the show, and my personal show notes, which include the articles cited in our content. Once you're a patron, you're a patron for life, regardless of what sort of deals we sign. So get in on the ground floor now by heading to patreon.com slash wrote. You'll be glad you did. All right, you guys ready for the Fantasy Indictment League? Yes. All right, so this week I was wondering if the FBI is really satisfied with KT McFarland's quote, revisions, uh, aka lies, <laughs> uh, or do they have to wait to indict her with the rest of the gang, right? These investigations have so many veins that have to be cauterized before you can like sew the whole case up. So if you indict her ahead of the rest, it could help Trump or any of the big fish with their own defenses or cause them to engage in witness tampering or intimidation, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm keeping her off my team for now. Though if he indicts everyone at once, we only get five picks. So you'll want to have all the high point people on your team for that week. But I feel like some folks can be indicted sooner for financial stuff. So that's why I'm going to keep Kushner and Papa Kushner and Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka and Stone. Interesting. Where are you guys at? I'm keeping the same, too, because it's it's all big ones. It's Kushner. It's uh, Cohen, Butina, um, Trump or haven't. You had Jr. on there. Yeah. And that's all five, I believe. Yep. Yeah. So um, I'm hoping he does them all at once in the end. That'll be nice. <laughs> it would be, it would be yes. a good week. <laughs> the best day ever. Like an <laughs> orgasm. Um, okay. I'm going to say Trump Org, Kushner, DTJ, Stone, and a Russian. A Russian rando. Uh, I do want to say, I know you guys have the Trump Org on there, mm-hmm. but I don't think that the Trump Org itself i guess from what i was talking um when i was talking to some experts about it the organizations are rarely um 
indicted. It's usually the executives of the organization. So you can keep the Trump org on there if you want. I mean, it might because we, we you know, we've already had like three or four entities uh, that have been Russia yeah, that have yeah. been indicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's kind of why I have Ivanka and Junior on there is because I think they would be the ones from the Trump org. Yeah, the there, direct yeah. source there. That's a very good point. I'm going to only stick to it because, well, I don't know. Is it a lesser point to get the Trump, Trump org than to get Ivanka? Yes. Oh, well, in that case, um, I already have Junior, so I'm going to switch out my Trump work for Ivanka then. Okay. Appreciate that. Yeah. I'm going to stay positive, and I'm just going <laughs> to switch it out with Trump. Oh, oh. shit. Indictment I know for it's Trump. not smart for, you know, Dude, week, you'd win the, the whole week play, but just, but yeah. just to Why be not? there. Yeah, yeah I'm just going to keep it there as a glimmer of hope. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's like especially, going. yeah, no, that's a good point, though. Even, like, the emoluments clause I was talking about, that's that's suing, you know, Trump that's not suing Trump org. So. True, true. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. All right, you guys ready for sabotage? Yeah. Yes. All right, guys, a huge story dropped Friday, pretty much unnoticed about the Russia investigation into collusion because we were all focusing on the Kavanaugh hearings. But I wanted to make sure you heard it. Luke Harding reported that The Guardian obtained evidence that Simon Kooks was in contact with a Kremlin official in 2016 while donating to the Trump campaign. So do you guys remember back in episode 44, good old episode 44, when uh, we reported a guy named Sam Patton was cooperating with Mueller? He, He put together a plea deal. Uh, He was a lobbyist and an associate of Manafort and an employee of Cambridge Analytica, and he used an unnamed straw donor in the U.S. to buy four tickets to the Trump inauguration for $50,000. Remember that guy? Yeah. So he was cooperating back in May, the same week Mueller was looking into Vexelberg, a Russian oligarch that donated $500,000 to the Trump inaugural from a Cypriot account into Cohen's slush fund at Essential Consulting. Um, Vexelberg is the cousin of a guy named Intrader, and Intrader was a guy we thought might have made that $50,000 payment because he's a U.S. citizen. He's a that's what it says in the criminal complaint. Well, Simon Kooks is an associate of Intrader, Vexelberg, and Herman Kahn of the Alpha Group. Okay, Herman Kahn is the father-in-law of Vanderswan. That's the lawyer who went to prison for lying to the FBI about his mm-hmm. contact with Gates, Rohrabacher, and Manafort. So the Atlantic has evidence that Kooks donated a substantial sum to Trump's campaign and communicated with Pavlovsky, a career Kremlin guy and former ambassador to Norway for mm-hmm. Russia. Uh, the Kooks donations began two weeks after the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting and totaled $273,000 to the Trump Victory Fund, which allocates donations to the RNC and state Republican parties. He has no previous history of giving money to any U.S. political causes. Uh, during that time, he was in contact with Pavlovsky, his buddy back at the Kremlin, saying, quote, I am actively involved in Trump's election campaign and I'm part of the group on strategy development. Unquote. Um, Flash in the butthole. <laughs> <laughs> the two tried to meet in Switzerland to discuss, quote, very interesting projects for Russia and the U.S., adding, quote, I hope one of them will materialize, unquote. Kooks attended a fundraising event and sent Pavlovsky photos of him and Rudy Giuliani uh, saying, I was at dinner with Donald Trump. I am in New York now. I think his chances are very good. In the photo is America's most respected former mayor. <laughs> and they both had Make America Great Again hats oh on. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, Kooks became a U.S. citizen in 1982, which allows him to make political donations. And he's been an oil man in Houston working for Phillips Petroleum and Amoco. As we discussed, Mueller's been looking into Americans with ties to Moscow that gave money to Trump, including Kukes, Kooks. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm saying Kooks. It's K-U-K-E-S. It could be Kukes. I dig it, yeah. I or, like Kooks. Or Cucks. 
Oh, hey. <laughs> that would be weird. Never rule out cucks. Not trying to say cucks. We got an email about not yeah, saying we did. cucks. We did. Yeah, we it did. really triggered them, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, they were, you know, they were like, don't do But Manafort is a cuck. I mean, like, like don't shame cucks. I'm like, that's what they want. Right. Um, uh, he's been looking into Americans with ties to Moscow that gave money to Trump. And those uh, that includes kooks, Blavatnik, and Intrader. All told, they've given nearly $2 million to funds that support Trump, and they're all U.S. citizens. He's part of a group of oligarchs, kooks is, that Mueller stopped at airports, or not, not I'm sorry, um, Vexelberg is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the guys where he stopped their planes, their private jets when they landed and, and questioned them. Right. On September 28th, 2016, Kooks gave $99,000 to Trump. I love how these guys give like just under 20 grand or just <laughs> under 100 grand. No so one's going to notice. It wouldn't look suspicious at all. Uh, and he attended another private Jewish fundraising event held in Manhattan Hotel. According to Ilya Zaslavsky, an associate at the Chatham House, Kooks is a member of a, quote, soft power network of rich Russian emigres that Russia exerts influence over for plausible deniability. Like they use them instead of Russians themselves mm-hmm. uh, because they're U.S. citizens. So on November 9th, 2016, Kooks got an email from Pavlovsky that read, hello, Dr. Semyon, congratulations. Sorry. Hello, dear Semyon. Uh, his name is Simon, but th- I think that's uh, Russian is Semyon. So on November 9th, the day the day of the election, he got an email from that guy at the Kremlin congratulating him. So I'm going to remove Papa Kushner and put kooks in my lineup. OK. I was wondering about Papa Kush. I was like, he does seem like he's got some, you know, skeletons in his closet. But uh, yeah, I don't know if he's the biggest fish. They mm-hmm. might just use him to get to. He'd be to considered Kush. family. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Kooks, kooks is a good one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a smart move. Subpoenaing his, subpoenaing his bank records is essential. Essential consultants. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking essential. I mean, the consequence, ultimate consequence would be that Russia funneled money through him, right? That's what we're getting at here. Yep. Yeah. Yep. To the inaugural or whatever. And mm-hmm. Where did that $50 million go? And they those guys gave over $2 million And one of them is probably the straw man that Sam, Sam Patton used to buy those four tickets. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it just seems I was thinking it might be in trade or could be kooks. Uh, but this is a big story. This is big news. So. Yeah, I hope that uh, they do indict him because I just saw a headline from the Times of Israel that said he is going to be actively involved in Trump election strategy. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if he returned on Trump like, and Trump gave him a nickname, I think kooky kooks would be number one, right? <laughs> just yeah, seems- goofy kooks. Kooky kooks. <laughs> I think goofy kooks. I like that. <laughs> this is better. Goofy. Because what about it makes Oh. Is that how you say it? Cookies. Cookies, cookies crisp. <laughs> <laughs> the cookies monster. <laughs> I like that. It's innocent. He's not. <laughs> Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> yes. It's just Russians <laughs> dressed in Girl Scout garbs. <laughs> the perfect disguise. That's how you infiltrate America. You go through the Girl Scout cookies. Yeah, for, for those you want to mean toward death. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to have a new segment right now. It's called SCOTUS. I don't know what else to call it. Um, it's scrotus. Scrotus. <laughs> um, and we don't have a song for it, but that's okay. But I, I just wanted to take the time now to go over what happened with Kavanaugh in the week because it was a lot. Uh, in fact, when I was typing this up or doing the script for this, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this has just been the last week Oh yeah, of stuff. So... We left off Saturday when shortly after we recorded, Blasey Ford and the Senate Judiciary agreed to a hearing on Thursday. There was a lot of back and forth, but Blasey Ford eventually had to agree to testify first when she wanted to go second. And they were not going to allow her to have any of her uh, four corroborating witnesses testify. Uh, They settled on 
a Maricopa County prosecutor named Rachel Mitchell, who worked under Joe Arpaio as a sex crimes prosecutor in Arizona as their, the woman who was going to be questioning Blasey Ford on behalf of the Republicans. I imagine they didn't want the 11 old white men um, to be grilling a victim of alleged sexual assault on television so close to the election. So mm-hmm. they're chicken shits. Yeah. Uh, then Sunday night, a second credible witness came forward. Her name is Deborah Ramirez. She alleges that Kavanaugh took his pants down and shoved his junk in her face at a party in a dorm room at Yale. She remembers him laughing at her when he was pulling up his pants and then somebody yelling out into the hall, Brett Kavanaugh just put his junk in Deborah's face. So that's how she remembers who it was. She just remembers him laughing. Uh, then another woman came forward via Michael Avenatti saying Kavanaugh and Judge would participate in gang bangs and that she had attended about 10 parties where guys, including Judge and Kavanaugh, would run a train uh, on women. Her, uh, her name is Julie Swetnick. Uh, Giuliani and other Republicans tried to belittle her allegations by saying she was a bad person for seeing that and continuing to go to the parties anyway and not telling anyone. Um, it's not the raping guys that are the bad part. It's that she she's the bad guy in yeah. that scenario. Yeah. Uh, Ramirez had called... Um, uh, had a, she, well, she had a scheduled call with Senate Republicans, but they didn't show up. And they just kept demanding all of her info from her lawyer up front without meeting, which is, to me, a bad faith negotiation. Um, Kavanaugh and his wife appeared Monday on Fox News, where he lied to the American people, saying he was of legal drinking age when he was in high school, but he was not. The drinking age in Maryland was elevated from 18 to 21 when Kavanaugh was 17. In fact, it was elevated on July 1st, 1982, which is an entry matches an entry in his calendar of going to have drinks at a guy named Squeeze House. He said we went to have skis, which is short for brewskis, mm-hmm. for douchebags, uh, <laughs> at uh, Squeeze House and with PJ um, and a guy named Smythe and... Uh, judge yeah that's his july 1st and it it makes sense that he would go and get shit faced on july 1st when they raised the drinking age even though he was 17 at the time Mm -hmm. i don't know but it makes sense like it was the last Mm -hmm. day before the law was enacted so um he also said on fox news he was a virgin when he was in high school and college uh and he provided a handwritten calendar as i was telling you of the time period in question asserting that he couldn't have done this because it wasn't in his calendar um the yale students um you know, like all the pretty much the whole school did a walkout and mass um, demanding an FBI investigation. And the dean of Yale came out against his appointment. Monday, we found out that Blasey Ford had hired Bromwich. And this is a powerful D.C. attorney who, who wrote a letter to the Senate Judiciary alleging they weren't negotiating in good faith about the Thursday hearing. And both uh, Katz and Bromwich are working pro bono for um, Blasey Ford. Very nice. Also Monday, NBC interviewed Kavanaugh's Yale roommate, James Roche, who said he would Kavanaugh would return drunk and belligerent after hanging out with friends. He also said Kavanaugh was a notably heavy drinker and he would frequently become incoherently drunk and that he knew Debbie Ramirez and saw her as credible, believed her story. Uh, Tuesday night, uh, Politico learned that Republicans did not have the votes for Kavanaugh. That was a secret admission by the Republicans Tuesday night that they didn't have the votes. Wednesday, a fourth and fifth accuser came forward anonymously and were immediately dismissed by Kavanaugh, Trump, and Republicans as not credible because they wanted to remain anonymous. That same day, four people came forward to corroborate Blasey Ford's testimony and they signed affidavits. Kavanaugh would later say that the <clears throat> these witnesses uh, denied the event occurred um, when actually they said they did not know about the event. And that's an important distinction because he said that over and over again on Thursday, that even the people who were there said it didn't happen. And first of all, he's saying that he wasn't even at the party, but then he said the people who were there, mm-hmm. which means they were there. 
like you can't have it both ways you can't say the people that were there said it didn't happen and also say we never went to the party so is he, he just saying that he didn't go to the party but he's not denying the party occurred right so the party because that would be crazy too if he's like the party didn't even happen also the people that were there like i'm trying to figure out did that's he's, what he's saying wow yeah it's super contradictory i mean he was probably blacked out i don't doubt he doesn't think it happened right and it's like if you get if you're freaking alcoholic and you're getting blacked out all the time and you're sexually assaulting people all the time i don't doubt that it's not something that stands out in his brain mm-hmm. but it's also like i was really frustrated sitting there watching the democrats not hound him on that yeah. yeah, letting a judge get away with misrepresenting facts that mm-hmm. have already been said within <coughs> minutes of what he was saying that contradicted yeah. it. It's crazy. And we'll, we'll get to the testimony here in a second. Um, There's a lot of wind up to it. Uh, Wednesday, uh, Wednesday, Senator Merkley filed a lawsuit to stop Kavanaugh, to stop the Kavanaugh vote, citing the constitutional advice and consent clause. Under that provision, the president can nominate a SCOTUS uh, justice without interference from Congress. And uh, likewise, Congress can deliberate without influence from the president. Merkley contends that when Trump blocked all the documents from being released and then had a private lawyer, Burke, label uh, thousands of documents committee confidential, Trump was violating the advice and consent clause by interfering with Senate deliberations. Hmm. Pretty solid lawsuit. Yeah. Uh, Wednesday, Ramirez and Swetnick said that they would be willing to testify during the Thursday hearings, but as we know, the Senate did not allow that. Um, then we all watched the hearings on Thursday, or at least saw the the highlights. Um, Blasey Ford was very credible. And there were parts of her story that really stood out to me. I think the historical clip, the one that's going to be played for decades um, to come, is when she said that the part that she'll never forget was when they were laughing at her. She was terrified and they were laughing at her expense. And that was also uh, reported by Ramirez, by the way, who said Kavanaugh was laughing at her when he was pulling his pants up after shoving his, uh, his junk in her face. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a common thread. Um, when it was Kavanaugh's turn, he came out noticeably rageful and emotional. He was crying and laughing and yelling, had a little bump in the middle of his nose was like all wrinkled up. (laughs) He was red in the face and and he was uh, saying that this was just revenge for losing the 2016 election and revenge on behalf of the Clintons, which is a hugely political statement to make for someone who's supposed to be apolitical Mm -hmm. and fair. Uh, it was clear to me he was coached by Trump on how to act like a giant angry baby man. Uh, and I was immediately struck by the fact that if it had been a woman that acted like that, she'd be labeled as hysterical. Oh, totally. Um, after his testimony, American Magazine, a Jesuit publication that had previously endorsed him, withdrew their endorsement. And the American Bar Association called for a delay in the vote. But it was scheduled for 930 the next morning anyhow. So that that testimony was insane. You know what we should do is we should have a female um, read Kavanaugh's testimony in in the manner that he said it and see if people feel differently hearing it from a woman. Because you're totally right. They hear a man cry and they're like, oh, my God, so much vulnerability. I feel so sorry for him. Mm-hmm. And when a woman cries, they're like, ah, typical. She can't keep her shit crazy together. No emotional. wonder she's crying. Wait, she's probably bleeding from her wherever. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's such misogyny. It's bad. Um, mm-hmm. And he was emotionally off the rails man oh, crazy he was not he does not have the he doesn't have the temperament temperament right. to be a judge yeah, yeah um regardless of whether or not this happened mm-hmm. he's lied several times he lied during his testimony when he said that he was of drinking age in high school that is a lie he lied to congress yeah he also lied about it. definitions of what boofing means and devil's triangle that was amazing it means <laughs> boofing he yeah. says was flatulence when it's a kind of anal mm-hmm. um then he said the devil's triangle was a drinking game like quarters like quarters and they're like really how's it played he's like well you take three glasses and you put them in a triangle have you played quarters no it's like quarters 
dude. He is so used to getting away with just saying whatever he wants. Like, yeah. I, someone like me could not be on a stand. Nope. Being a woman, being black, all these things, and just say things <laughs> that don't even make sense. Yeah, is Devil's got Triangle... There, Sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. If you got up there and tried to say Devil's Triangle was a drinking game, you'd, you'd be like, get this crazy Yeah, they wouldn't here. even listen to me. What is Devil's Triangle? A Devil's Triangle is a threesome with two dudes. Oh. You can't look at the other one in the eye. Yeah, it's like, oh. an, like an Eiffel Tower kind of position. Yeah, where you're just What's, like... I, yeah, I don't even think it's the position. I think it's the... Just the act itself. The act. Yeah, two mm-hmm. men, one one woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Don't Jeez. look them in the eye. And he doesn't even <sighs> want to admit to the fact that he was just a sexually active kid. I know he's afraid of like these things all making him look bad, but he can't admit to like any of it. Like He's like, oh, I just liked beer. I, was, I didn't have a problem that I got over. Like He's afraid of any little bit of truth coming out because mm-hmm. the whole house of cards will fall down. Well, it's Insulting. not just that, but I mean, if you think about how many people, how many Republicans and judges went to Georgetown Prep, they don't want this getting out either. They You're don't right. want an investigation into this. Yeah, the problem is so systematic with the people that are in power and so many of them having done so many awful things mm-hmm. like times are changing they don't want to get wrapped up in it yeah yeah uh it, what was really funny was during kavanaugh's testimony someone from the house of representatives went into wikipedia and changed the definition for devil's triangle no way <laughs> yeah that's right they that. went in from the congressional house of representatives addition like account and said that it's uh, a drinking game for kavanaugh's buddies that they actually put that in there wow. I, I think it was a troll okay i was gonna say i wonder if they're just trying to like rewrite things like oh now it means this no if it's if it said a drinking game with three glasses played like quarters that would have been like a Republican trying to do right. it. But the fact that it said a drinking game for Kavanaugh's buddies. <laughs> Just them. Yeah. I think it was kind of a troll. I that think it must sense. have been a troll. I love it. Um, my takeaway from watching him answer questions, um, several that he refused to answer. And at some points he got really indignant, especially with female senators like Amy Klobuchar, when mm-hmm. she's like, did you ever get blackout drunk? And she didn't. She wasn't accusatory with her question. She said, you know, my father's an alcoholic. He's been going to meetings. He's 90 now. He still goes to meetings and Mm -hmm. he's a recovering alcoholic. So I understand what that's like. And have you ever drinked to the point of excess where you have forgotten periods of time or blacked out? Mm -hmm. And he's like, have you? Yeah, he's like, I've fallen asleep after I was really drunk. Have you ever passed out? Passed out, but fallen asleep, but not passed out. He that won't was, even uh, be human. He that was be honest. Rachel Mitchell that asked him that question. Yeah. But yeah, but he was yelling at Amy Club. Have you? What do you drink? Have you ever done it? And she's like, I'm not. This isn't my job interview, bro. Mm-hmm. I, I already have my job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you need know, to answer the question. Something else that was interesting from the um, hearing, or at least what came from it, was when those those women in the elevator with Flake. Did uh-huh. you catch that? Yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to talk about that in a second. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, that's a monumental historical mm-hmm. thing that happened Definitely. in the elevator. Yeah. But uh, I wanted to really quick just say that here's what I think of after watching him, and here's what I think he, here's who I think he is. I don't think he's a lifelong serial rapist. Right. I think he was obsessed with impressing his male friends and did these things to do that solely to impress his friends, his Or buddy, that's just who he Mark was at Judge. the time. Yeah, maybe he enjoyed it at the time. But yeah. I feel like he stopped after he was done with college and went on to become an adult, mm-hmm. and he no, didn't participate in those kind of things anymore. He still drank. Right. Um, but like, you know, but then there's also the thing where he was maybe on a boat in 1998 or something like that. So it could go either way, but I definitely think that where it started was him trying to be cool. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it it is to a sense teenagers being teenagers, but not to, to say that it's okay for a rapist to be rapists. Like, you know, or it's it's not okay. Yeah. It's like, none of the behavior is okay, but I think he did it to impress his friends. Right. There's logic behind the idea that he, he felt like he was just a part of the gang. Everyone was doing it. That's just what we did back then, but he won't admit now that what mm-hmm. he did then was wrong because it'll take away what he wants right now. Yeah, so he's just denying it all happened. Yeah, it's really sad for a Supreme Court justice nominee to be like that, to be so 
just and I think that's why he was so mad at himself and crying. Yeah, is because he he knows he did those things and he did it to impress his stupid douchebag mm-hmm. friends, not because that's the man he really is on the inside. Right. And that's I think what was he was so angry about. Yeah. He was just projecting that on the rest of us. Very good point. Yeah. Yeah. No one's perfect, but you're right. The things that he's accused of, it's like we can find a better job for him. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, they're more. He shouldn't even positions. be sitting on the D.C. District Court. You're right. Absolutely not. No, this is absurd. And yeah, I think that's that's. For someone to sit there who is simultaneously saying that he likes beer and is getting flustered and embarrassed and angry to the point where it's like, okay, clearly this guy has a drinking problem. Mm -hmm. And then for him to be so caught that he can't accept that there's even a slight possibility that his memory may have been absent at some points due to his drinking and, mm-hmm. and saying he passed oh i felt i've fallen asleep sometimes after i drink you know it's, it's just, insulting it's so transparent and see-through and the double standard that when they listen to ford they say they believe her testimony but they think her trauma the effect it had on her memory has made it so she has the wrong guy yeah. and then they won't even entertain the idea for a second that the mm-hmm. trauma that alcohol does to your hippocampus will result in something like this. Could, yeah, they yeah. won't entertain that. They'll even point out the fact that with Dr. Ford, they're like, oh, well, we think something very bad happened to you. We just don't think it's what you said. It's like, what do you mean? You're saying she clearly was traumatized. Someone clearly did something sexually to her against her will. But you got the wrong guy. Also, we don't really believe what you're saying. It makes no sense. Yeah. And and honestly, I think what might come back out of all this, and we'll touch on this a little bit in a minute, is you're not going to be able to prove that he did this Mm -hmm. um, attempted rape. You're not going to be able to prove it. But what you can prove is that he his lifestyle during that time is inconsistent with his testimony about who he was. Yeah. And that he lied. He lied when he said Devil's Triangle is a drinking game. He lied when he said boofing is farting. He lied. Like he. It's very telling lied. too. Why would you lie about things that college people do? That's not. I mean, it's illegal to drink underage. But like these are things that he could well, because just said, if he says boofing is anal and a Devil's Triangle is a three way and Renat alumnus means we, you know, and I don't think he. I don't think he actually did had, anything with uh, Renat. But the I think impression. He, I think he lied about it to be cool to his friends. Exactly. Just who he was. But I mean, <clears throat> it's crazy. That's why I think that he probably actually did commit the assault because I feel like someone in his position would be like, well, yeah, I drank and I did this thing that people do when they drink and I passed out, but I'm not that person anymore. Oh, I'm sure he did. But it's sexual It's too credible yeah. because, yeah. you know, she lists people who were at this party. And that's consistent with a, an event he went to in July on his calendar. She talks about talking, running six to eight weeks later, running into judge at the Safeway where he worked and he was all hungover. Mm-hmm. Uh, she talks about, I mean, sh- these are really credible. She named PJ Smith and Squee and mm-hmm. Judge before his calendar came out, which right. listed those guys going to have skis that one night at Squeeze. Exactly. How would she know squeeze. if he wasn't there and all these things? Exactly. It's too corroborative. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they may be able to find out. the. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about what the FBI is going to investigate. But I wanted to get back to what you were talking about. Um, about the two women who stopped Jeff Flake in an elevator. I rewatched that so many times. Gave him a piece of their minds. Um, It was, uh, I think, Anna Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher. Wow, I didn't know their names. And uh, I I think that's a thing. Nice, nice. I think that's correct. Um, But they stopped Jeff Flake in an elevator, held the door, and were like, how can you do this? You're, You're saying that... You're basically saying that my assault means meant nothing. Meant nothing. And mm-hmm. she was like, look at me when I'm talking to you. It was and amazing. he was like really just 
it was hard for him. Not I'm not going to feel bad for him. No, but, but you could tell in his eyes. He was struggling. Yeah, he he um, looked very worrisome, and I think for the right reasons. I think he was conflicted, like mm-hmm. anyone should be. It's like okay, I want to be someone who's by the book, and we we have evidence and you know corroborate that. But these women were just they were telling him that no one believes me because there's no evidence in these situations, right? Yeah. There's no like quote unquote like hard witnesses, and 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 he was like, I hear you, and then. Right after that, I mean, who knows politically what happened behind closed doors, but it seems like that had a huge influence on his decision to go from mm-hmm. saying yes to Kavanaugh and then saying, well, I might still say yes pending an FBI investigation. Mm-hmm. And that he did beautiful. actually say that in, a, in an interview. Nice. Uh, that there were a lot of things weighing heavily on him. But, I mean, he went in, they went into the vote at the, not the, not the full Senate, but mm-hmm. the, just the group of 21 Senate judiciary people to right. basically they vote to move it to the floor for a full yes. vote. And during that time is when Flake... Um, was talking to his buddy Coons, who's a Democrat, who he's worked with very closely. And Coons was like, I, you know, he seemed visibly shaken up that that Flake has decided to vote yes. And they were in that room, and Flake was saying, I, I'd like to call for an FBI investigation. And as he's doing this and making these announcements, Grassley is pushing the vote through. Bro, call the roll, call the roll. <laughs> and so they vote while while he's trying to talk. They're voting, mm-hmm. and then he does vote yes to mm-hmm. uh, Flake votes yes, and they the, all these women. Uh, Democrats from the House came in and then all walked out um, yep. uh, simultaneously. Is that just, when Cory and they were and... just fucking mad dogging? Oh yeah, Grassley. They were just all these women standing up in the back with their arms folded, just looking at him like you motherfucker. The walkout was intense. Didn't, didn't Cory leave at that time? Cory Booker. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he did. And then so they voted yes, and they, eleven to ten, right along party lines, to mm-hmm. get Kavanaugh to the full House or full Senate vote. And that's the point where. Kavanaugh said, I'm not going to vote yes until there's an FBI investigation. Or um, Flake, you mean. Yeah, Flake, yeah. sorry. Mm-hmm. What did I say? Kavanaugh, oh. but about Kavanaugh. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, no, he didn't vote. It was That's the way government should work. It was like a mini town hall. He listened. He he didn't want to be seen closing the door on these women, I'm sure. Also, he probably really wanted to hear them. So the optics and then the actual concern together, like it was the perfect moment for for a politician to be like, well, okay, since we're already here, <laughs> you know, let's let's do this. And it, I think it worked. I mean, it did work. Yeah. We have an FBI investigation and the FBI began immediately. And the LA Times reported late Friday night that they had already reached out to the anonymous women for questioning. And that's an important distinction because it seemed that the Senate and Trump only wanted what they considered credible allegations uh, to limit the scope of the investigation. And she shouldn't have been included in that. So it's interesting that, that the LA Times reported that. And uh, they also put a one-week time limit on it. Experts um, have said that the FBI will looking, be looking at people, places, and things, including everyone that's come forward, everyone that was listed in this calendar. There was an entry, like I said, in his calendar for July 1st, which is the night that the drinking age went from 18 to 21 in 1982, where he said he went to have beers with his buddies at Squeeze House. And uh, Blasey Ford says... Um, those people were there during her, or, her her ordeal, and they're listed in the calendar. So they're going to question all those people. Mm-hmm. They'll be trying to find out which house they were at. Was Squeeze House? If so, does Squeeze House match the description of what Blasey Ford said? A narrow staircase, a bathroom across from the bedroom, etc. Uh, and if it matches, that corroborates her story. They'll be looking at the calendar to see if the ink is 36 years old or not. Oh, or shit. if it was written last week. Wow. They'll be corroborating his testimony about his yearbook, such as boofing, referring to flatulence, the 4th of July being about the way his friend said the word fuck. Did you hear that testimony? Oh, yeah. He's like, well, our friend Squee had a funny way of saying fuck, so he'd wind up like, fuck. I'm like, you're so dumb. That is the dumbest lie I've ever heard. Uh, that a devil's triangle is a drinking game like we talked about and whether or not he was pretty much a raging alcoholic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the FBI and the Democrats have said if you have any information on Kavanaugh, you can go to your local FBI field office to report it. Very nice. You don't have to wait for the FBI to call you. 
So You know what else is beautiful about this? Uh, Kavanaugh and a lot of Republicans have been saying, well, this is, you know, a terrible situation and it's going to make a lot of good people not want to come forward as nominees in the future. And, and Trevor Noah said, wouldn't it be amazing if like no judicial nominees were accused of sexual assault? Like, isn't that something we should aspire to? <laughs> like that these people won't want to put their name forward because they know they have a shady Cole past. Colbert said that too. Oh he yeah, said, it must have been him the actually. Democrats yeah. up to their wily ways trying to make sure nobody in government has ever committed sexual assault. What <laughs> well, a bunch of dicks. So terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Like it's, yeah, they also need to call an expert witness or whatever they do in, in an FBI investigation. I don't know how that works, but someone that is a PhD in psychology just to explain his reaction and Absolutely. how that matches how people react. I mean, the FBI will know, too, with all the, their investigations, yeah. too, I'd imagine. But just an expert to be like, he look was, at the behavior of both of them. Yeah. Compare. He it. was so defensive. So defensive. And she held it together so well. Even when uh, Cory Booker was explaining to her, like, just how systematically wrong this is, sexual assault in our country, she was holding back tears, clearly. And she made it all the way through into that moment. She, you could tell it was, like, getting to her, but she made it without actually crying. And, and I feel like Kavanaugh, at the slightest thing, was just like, uh. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you don't realize how, how tough it is for women or any victim to come forward and then on top of that to not break down. Kavanaugh was crying about lifting weights with his bros. <laughs> Privilege. He was crying about football practice right. and working out with his buddies at mm-hmm. Tobin's house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Tobin's spirit guide. And I know this <laughs> reminds is, me of Ghostbusters. This so is much. probably still the worst thing that's. And this is not to say that he's not a uh, perpetrator, but just saying that this is probably the worst thing that's happened to him. And and with privilege, I imagine because Sarah Silverman said like people that are not privileged they see through everyone's lenses because they have to. You know, women see through men's lens, lenses as well as their own. Black people and so forth. So I feel like with Kavanaugh, like he's at the top of this totem pole of privilege, and he mm-hmm. really feels victimized like he really feels like this is a crazy attack even though he knows he did things i'm sure i feel like he just doesn't understand why yeah, it's happening very, to him he's very used to not being to getting in trouble for those kind of things right oh he's yeah very white privileged prep mm-hmm. school um he's confused yeah. <laughs> issue so yeah he was hysterical he's yeah must be bleeding from his wherever i don't yeah. know <laughs> and to have like i can imagine how i and this is not sympathy just understanding i can imagine that it's frustrating to be met with the reality that your memory cannot account for the things that you probably did exactly because you have a fucking lifelong drinking problem you know he he paints himself as a boy scout went to church i think he said something like um you know as somebody asked him why church wasn't in his calendar and he's like because it's like brushing my teeth i don't put brushing my teeth in my calendar and i'm like well if you're a rapist so is raping people and you wouldn't put that in your calendar either if it's part of your daily routine mm-hmm. such a good point it, it just he paints himself as this virgin dorky choir boy um basically who somebody credico would call a sanctimonious choir boy like james comey <laughs> mm-hmm. who actually probably is i think i think james comey is the kind of guy in high school and college that kavanaugh wishes he were <laughs> no that he's trying to make other people think that he mm-hmm. was good point good point point. Um, and it's easy when you're a white straight man that's the it's kind of the beauty of it is that you can paint yourself as anything you really want yeah but comey white straight man was actually a boy scout you're right mm-hmm. um <clears throat> he yeah, wouldn't have caught. to yeah he wouldn't have to you know rely on his privilege to to not have to face these kind of accusations mm-hmm. I, I don't think but right. uh that's always just conjecture but yeah anyway guys that's where we're at now all right guys that's all we have i really appreciate again all of the support i know this has been a, a, a tough week um especially for survivors both m- male and female to watch 
uh, just have your testimony discredited and be disbelieved. And I think we all had kind of a, a moment when those two women confronted Flake in the elevator and just spoke their minds and um, uh, their heroes to me. So that's it. I've been A.G. I've been Julissa Johnson. I've been Jordan Coburn. And this is Muller She Wrote. She Wrote is produced and engineered by AG with editing and logo design by Jalisa Johnson. Market consulting by Amanda Reeder at Unicorn Creative. Our digital media director and subscriber managers are Jordan Coburn and Sarah Hirschberger Valencia. Fact-checking and research by AG with support from Jalisa Johnson and Jordan Coburn. Muller She Wrote staff includes AG, Jalisa Johnson, Jordan Coburn, Sarah Hirschberger Valencia, Jesse Egan, and Sarah Lee Steiner. Our web design and branding are by Joelle Reeder with Moxie Design Studios, and our website is MullerSheWrote.com. Hi, I'm Dan Dunn, host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the most wildly entertaining adult beverage-themed podcast in the history of the medium. That's right, the boozy best of the best, baby. And we have the cool celebrity promos to prove it. Check this out. Hi, I'm Allison Janney, and you're here with me on What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's my sexy voice. Boom. Boom is right, Academy Award winner Allison Janney. As you can see, celebrities just love this show. How cool is that? Hey, this is Scotty Pippen, and you're listening to The Dan Dunn Show. And wait, hold on. The name of the show is what? All right, sure. Scotty Pippen momentarily forgot the show's name, but there's a first time for everything. Hey, everyone. This is Scoot McNary. I'm here with Dan Dunn on What Are You Drinking? What's it called again? Fine, twice. But famous people really do love this show. Hi, this is Will Forte, and you're, for some reason, listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. What do you mean for some reason, Will Forte? What's going on? Hi, this is Kurt Russell. Listen, I escaped from New York, but I couldn't get the hell out of Dan Dunn's happy hour. Please, send help. Send help? Oh, come on, Kurt Russell. Can somebody out there please help me? I'm Dita Von Tees, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. <laughs> Let me try one more time. Come on. Is that right? What we're no, drinking? It's amazing. It, it's it amazing. Right, it's just... Is it right? Ah, that's better. So be like Dita Von Teese, friends, and listen to what we're drinking with Dan Dunn, available wherever you get your podcasts. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, 
How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.